Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. And if you don't have your own Bible, let me encourage you to take the pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 894. And if you turned there, then in most of your versions, you will notice that prior to uh, John 8, actually begins at the end of John 7, there's a note there, a note that's going to really bother some of you. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include... 753 to 811. What in the world? If you're visiting with us, you, you may be saying, wait a minute, I thought this was a church that believed the Bible and now he's going to tell me that, that there's something in the Bible that's not in the Bible. What's the deal? So how do we, how do we address this? And should we even address it? One commentator uh, that I've used throughout this series uh, uh, starts out by saying this. I'm not going to deal with the authenticity of the first part of this chapter. That's how he dealt with it. <laughs> so I'll have to say, I'm not going to deal with it like he dealt with it. We need to talk about this. I want to be right up front with you about the problems with this text. And you may say, why? That's going to cause doubt in some people's minds. And, and I, I would have to respectfully disagree. Uh, if we don't talk about this honestly, then you know these seniors that were standing up here? When they go off to college and and maybe take a religion course or they're sitting in on a Bible study and, and somebody says, well, you know, there's a whole section that's in the Bible that shouldn't even be there. And they say, where? In John, wait a minute, our pastor preached through that. If we didn't say anything, if we didn't explain why we're dealing with this, then they would actually have a right to think, well, were they hiding something? Is, is our faith intellectually true? Can it stand up against those who argue that the Bible is not the Word of God? And so, yes, we will deal with this right up front precisely because we do believe the Bible is the Word of God. And so we're not afraid to, to look at these difficult passages. In fact, there's a whole science that has to do with what should be included in the Scripture and what should have been excluded from the Scripture. Now, in your versions, I would suspect that uh, basically all of them include this passage, even if it has uh, a footnote or or that particular statement. 
Let me tell you why we're going to study this passage and why we're going to study it in this place. You see, there are some that say it shouldn't be there at all. And in fact, in some early manuscripts, there was just a blank there. It came to a point, and then there was a blank, and then it went on with the rest of chapter 8. So that was some manuscripts. Then there were others where it was placed in a different place in John and some where it was placed in a, in a, in, over in Luke. But we're going to deal with it here and I want to explain to you why. Um, first of all, uh, some manuscripts that include it uh, refer even to other writings, even non-biblical ones that talk about the account of the woman who was accused of many sins before the Lord. So let me, let me just make this statement. Even those that, that think it should be somewhere else in the Scripture, and even those that say it shouldn't be included, say this was an authentic account. It really took place. And so, uh, that's one reason we are dealing with it. I think also we need to deal with it right here because I feel like a case can be made that it fits better here in the flow of the gospel than in other places where it has been placed. Here's why. Uh, when we're about to get to an I am statement next week, Whenever Jesus makes the I am statements, there's always an incident that took place right before that. For instance, uh, he says, I am the bread of life. Right before that, what did he do? He made bread for 20,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children. So that was, that's the pattern throughout John where there's uh, something that took place and then one of the I am statements, and that's what we see here. He will be saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will uh, have the light of life. That's next week. But this fits perfectly before that. It's a fitting example of what he's about to teach in terms of righteousness and freedom in Christ, which we'll have the week after next. Now, let me also say this. There is an understandable, not defensible, but an understandable reason why this story might have been omitted in some of the early manuscripts. In other words, why someone who was copying uh, a, a manuscript might have seen this account and they did the wrong thing, but they might have, might have thought, I, I can't pass this on. And that was because in, in the society that they were in, which was an immoral, pagan society, uh, it's easy to see how this story might have been used by the enemies of the gospel to say that, that Christ condoned fornication or adultery. 
And so someone with a, a right heart but with, with wrong actions might have said, I, I can't pass this on in good conscience. Both Augustine and Ambrose thought that's why it was omitted. And then, fourthly, we are going to study it today, and I'm about to read it, so stay with me. We are going to study it today because it fits with the way Jesus treated other sinners. We will see from from the lessons that it's the way he often dealt with sinners such as tax collectors and others. So let's take a look at this passage. We will begin with 753. They, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to her, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses uh, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and, and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we would pray now that you would open your word to us. That your precious Holy Spirit would be our teacher We submit our hearts to you, our our minds to you. Will you make them open? Will you make them moldable? We ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now let's take a look at the account. What are they trying to do to Jesus? Well, it was a setup. Here's why I'm convinced it was a setup. I'm convinced the woman had to be set up. Jewish law was very specific, and it demanded 
the most incontrovertible, I'm proud of myself, I, I couldn't say that all week, incontrovertible, so I'm saying it twice, evidence for guilt when it, when it came to any crime that was punishable by execution. So he, here's what we, we see with this. The, the result of that demand was that it made it very hard, in fact, almost impossible to secure the death penalty in any but the most obvious cases. So here's, here's how it was uh, practiced by the rabbis in the time of Christ and later required multiple witnesses to adultery before the charge could be substantiated. So here's what it is. Let's just say it out loud. They had to be caught in the act. That's why it was very hard to prove. And so this woman seems to have been set up. You, you may be wondering, well, what, what makes you think that? Well, one of the reasons is, where's the man? So he either escaped, as some might say, well, that's what happened, or he was let go, or worst case scenario, he was part of the setup. Not just to catch the woman. That wasn't the point of this. But to set Jesus up. And they wanted to catch him. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, it, it makes it very clear that when it comes to adultery, both are guilty. The man and the woman. And both who are caught deserve to die. That was the Old Testament way of dealing with it. So we see this, this setup. So the woman is set up, but I'm convinced that Jesus was being set up as well. They put him on the what we would call this is a classic horns of the dilemma. If you can picture a bull with his horns and where, where that statement came from. And, and so if you get gored by this horn, you're dead. But if you get away from that horn and the other horn gores you, it's just as bad. And so basically they were trying to put him in a position where if he answered this way, he was on this horn of the dilemma. And if he answered another way, he was on this horn of the dilemma. But the setup was, we're going to get him. They've been after him, as we've seen in previous chapters. So here are the, the two horns of the dilemma. If Jesus just let the woman off the hook, if he just said, no, leave her alone, this is a setup or something like that, then they would say, well, they would go around declaring, well, Jesus is ignoring the law of Moses. It's very clear. She was caught, and so she deserves to die in this. So if he said that, that would be his problem. If he condemned her, 
then he would have been in trouble with Rome for one thing because they weren't allowed to do death penalty things. The Jews weren't. But he would also be giving up his, his compassionate teaching. Here is Jesus who said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. And if he said, condemn her, they would have said, his teaching doesn't mean anything. He condemned a woman. So that's the dilemma. And it's, this wasn't just a localized dilemma. This gives us a big picture of a profound moral problem, and that is how can justice and mercy be harmonized? How can those two fit together? Now, that's, that's essential when we're looking at Jesus. Let me remind you uh, how Jesus is described in the first chapter of John, where uh, in John 1.14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So He is, he is both of those things. He's, he's on the one hand, He is full of grace, and on the other hand, He is full of truth. So the question is, how can these two possibly fit together. So that's, that's the account. I want us to look at some applications of this. The first thing I want us to notice from this uh, passage, these are things we need to take away from this passage, and this first one may seem like a side point, but it's, it's, it's uh, very, very important I want us to notice how Jesus treated the woman. Because the way Jesus treated that woman was countercultural. In that day, women were not treated with respect. It was Christ and then Christianity that brought dignity to women and lifted them to where they were co-heirs with men. Now, they were always in that position, but, but no society recognized that. They were seen as property to be used. And Jesus would have none of that. And we see that here. Let me read to you from Dorothy Sayers. And you may say, Dorothy Sayers? I've read some of her mystery novels. And, and she did write some uh, great mystery novels, but she also wrote of her Christian faith. And this was about how Jesus treated women. He said they, uh, she said they, the women, had never known a man like this man. There never was or had been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Jesus brought into the world a, a radical view of women 
and all humanity. And that's the Christian way as well. Now, here's, here's the, the next thing I, and as we get to the core of this. Dealing with this question. How can we love one who is caught in sin? We are so often caught in a similar dilemma. And we often use uh, the phrase, we love the sinner and hate the sin. But others in our society basically say, no, you don't. If you, if you act like you hate the sin, then, then you're hating the person too. They're saying if you can't, you're not loving them if you, if you don't accept them the way they are at this point, doing what they want to do. Now, each week in, in our staff meeting, uh, normally for our devotional time, I will go over the passage that I'm about to preach on. And uh, now this is Tuesday morning, so it's usually early on. And so I'll, throw, I'll tell them what I've looked at so far and then, uh, you know, throw out questions and they'll give me input. And it's, it's very helpful uh, for me. This week I asked them to give me a real-life situation that they were dealing with or know someone dealing with it where they, that they thought of um, where someone is uh, uh, dealing with this kind of a, a situation where you're trying to figure out how do I love the person but hate the sin? And I said, give me, give me an example of that. And they gave me the same example that I had already thought of before I, I went into the meeting. They said, what about those that are dealing with same-sex attraction? Now, some of you are going to be shocked by that. Some of you may say, well, why would we, we talk about that? Well, some of you are shocked by it, but most of you have had to deal with that. Either yourself, either your own, how do I deal with this as a Christian? Or someone in your family or someone you love. And so let me use that as the example but, but I want you to uh, not get stuck just on that example. But I know that's real life for many of you. But if you're not dealing with that right now or there's nobody that you know, I, I want you to think in terms of dealing with situations where someone we are in contact with or we love is caught in sin. In other words, they're deliberately choosing their own way over God's. How do, we, how do we deal with that in a Christ-like way? So suppose someone you, you love is in the grips of uh, same-sex attraction. On the one hand, you want to be loving like Jesus was. On the other hand, you want to 
be faithful to what the Bible tells you in terms of sin. In the area we're talking about, I've put a cup, just a couple of passages, 1 Timothy and uh, 1 Corinthians. But they very specifically say if, not, not just the attraction, but if you are engaged in that activity, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's how serious. So how do we handle it? How do we handle it? Often not very well. Here's the, the two tendencies that I think we, we tend to go. One tendency is overacceptance. Some will completely accept it to the point where this isn't even an issue, it's okay. I love you enough to help let you continue on in that regardless of what the Bible says. I love you and I accept you. Go ahead. That's the one tendency. And the other tendency is over-condemning. So over-acceptance or over-condemning where you can't even have a conversation without it being an issue. You feel like you've got to keep bringing it up because you, you uh, believe the Bible is clear in that. You know it's wrong in God's eyes and feel like to be faithful to God, you've got to con- continually make it known to the one you love. Or perhaps you just quit talking altogether with that person and cut them off. I would suggest to you that if we are to love one another the way Jesus loved, neither of those options fit. Amy Carmichael, who served as a missionary in India, made this statement. Our God meets us just where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He meets us just where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. I think she nailed the balance right there. When Jesus dealt with this woman, he started by dealing with the attitude and sinful behavior of those who were condemning her. That's where he started. He didn't even start with whatever she had done. He forced those who were the accusers to look at their own heart. And that's where we have to start for ourselves, and that's recognizing our own sin. A lot of people miss this. Jesus didn't dodge the question. He didn't waffle. He took a stand. Did you catch the stand that he took? He basically said this. Go ahead and stone her. Go ahead and execute her. That's what he said. Now, he did put a qualifier on it. But he told them that, indeed, that's what you ought to do. The only qualification was that you who have no sin need to be the first to throw the stone. Okay, so if they were picking up stones, it was like, oh, okay. Back in 
God's law in Deuteronomy 17, the law required witnesses to cast that first stone. They had to be, uh, and, and they had to be free from any association with the crime. So you couldn't be a witness and an accuser. So Jesus is basically honoring the law of God. He's saying, go ahead and do it. Over in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So there's that, that the, the call to be gentle and the desire to restore. But here's, here's what he says. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul is saying the same thing. If you're in a position of, of dealing with someone else, look in here first. Look at your own heart. Now notice that Jesus doesn't stop, though, with not condemning her. He told them to go ahead and stone her uh, if they had no sin. It says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And by the way, you older ones? By the way, we older ones... uh, I think for most believers, the older you get in the Lord, the more you see your own sin. And when we look at others' sin, we tend to reflect. That's how it was here. And it goes on in verse 9, And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, some want to stop there. See, Jesus isn't condemning. He came, all this good, wonderful, warm, fuzzy things. It's true. But then he showed perfect love for her when he said, and from now on, sin no more. Now, that, that, it wasn't that she would be perfect from then on, but he was talking about this lifestyle of yours, this which you are doing, which you have chosen, or even if it was just a one-time act, go away from that. Jesus met her where she was, but he wasn't willing to leave her there, and that's the model for dealing with others who sin. Accept them Know the depth of your own sin, and that will enable you not to look down upon them. Then the most loving thing you can do is to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus and not leave them in their sin. That's what Jesus did here. It has to be out of love. Now, you may be saying, how can I even love a person like that? Well, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, Christ lives in your heart. The Holy Spirit is there. And if 
you don't have the capability of, of loving them. Christ in you can love them. And that's really our only hope for a, a pure and a right love. One more important point here. Why Jesus didn't pronounce judgment on the woman. Why did he say, neither do I condemn you? The only explanation is that Jesus didn't pronounce judgment on the woman for the same reason he did not pronounce it upon all who come to him in faith. Same reason he didn't pronounce it on us if we're trusting in Christ. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6 that I referred to earlier. It's the same list in 1 Corinthians 6 that says uh, those who uh, practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God also said, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then catch this. And such were some of you. Get it? He puts that, that, that sin that we were just talking about right smack in the middle of, of all these other sins that you all commit, and so do I. And such were some of you. But then he goes on, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus didn't say, <clears throat> look, woman, stop sinning, and then I will think about whether you'll be one of my children. He said, look, I don't condemn you. He, he knew her heart. And then he said, because of that, go and sin no more. When it... When it uh, when he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, he was the only one that qualified. He was the only one that could have picked up a stone and thrown it because he had no sin. But instead, he didn't condemn her. Instead of throwing the stone at her, he took her stoning on the cross. Psalm 85 verse 10 has a, a beautiful picture. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And that was pointing toward the cross. That's where it all met. He died to pay the full penalty demanded by God's wrath. 
He took her stoning. He took our stoning. He didn't just give forgiveness lightly. It was costly. He was about to make forgiveness a reality by the act of suffering in place of the sinner. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we often fall short when it comes to being full of your grace and full of your truth. Will Christ, you who dwell in us, express that to others? Will you help us to look deep within our own heart, be reminded of the glory of the gospel, and when it has gripped us, will you cause that to enable us to reach out to those around us with the heart of Christ? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.